my, my little encouragement just for us as a church is uh, that as you, you listen to these things that people are sharing, you take time after we're done with worship to, and, and next week to follow up with people. I mean, you know, and just say, hey, how's it going? Or, you know, how can I pray for you even, even more? Tell me a little bit more about that. I'd love to, to cover you and pray for you, and I'd love to support you. And it doesn't just have to happen here. Listen to the people that are offering things up. If they're being bold enough to offer them up to everybody, it means that they're giving you an invitation to say, I want to pray for you even beyond this place. So listen to each other's lives, step into each other's heartbeats, and uh, let's pray for each other as we go outside of these doors as well. <clears throat> so... Okay, so here we go. Back into the book of James. I know a lot of you have been saying, are we ever going to get back in there? Are we ever going to finish it? I, I don't know the answer to that. We may actually never get through James. I keep, every time I get, think we're going to make it a little bit farther, I divide it up into two sections, which I did this week. I love this book. It is an amazing picture of what I truly believe the life we're called to live looks like. For those of you here for the first time, we are actually in week 10 in a series that I titled Life Authentic, which is a verse-by-verse journey through the book of James. We started in James 1.1, and we have gone through every single verse all the way up through chapter 3. and We've unpacked, really, what I believe to be some of the most profound thoughts in a Christ-following life, or a picture of a Christ-following life in all of Scripture. And really, the series was born out of some struggles that I was having in my own spiritual life. Like much of the, the things that I preach and teach on are, are things that God is revealing to me, doing in me, challenging me, and they just sort of come out here, right? So they're not lectures for you to listen to. They're things that God is doing in me that I think Scripture is pointing for all of us. And, and James was really born out of that because really I, I came to a place in my spiritual life where I felt like I was living in the middle of everything. I mean, everything was just sort of in the, as mediocre. I knew that God had so much more for me, but I was just sort of, had found myself becoming passionless and content with living in the middle, and I was just tired of it. And as I opened up the book of James and just began to spend time with the Lord, I realized that the letter of James was written to move us beyond the mediocre Christian life that says, yeah, I, I'm just here, and into the life that God has actually called us to, that it challenges us to live a faith that is alive and authentic and full of passion. And my, my thing that I come in contact with Christians on an everyday basis, when I visit with you, when we hang out, when we talk, is that most of us have lost a passion for Jesus. Somewhere along the way, we have exchanged a passion and a deep burning fire to know Christ with just a contentment to going to church and not doing a whole lot of things wrong. And we wake up one day and we wonder how we got here. It just, it's not awful. Life's not terrible. It's going fine. But it's been a month since I've even opened my Bible. And, and I've been to church here and there. But I know that God wants more from me. And I just feel like I'm going through the motions, if you will. And I believe that we were called to a life of authenticity. An authentic life is one that says, God, I know you. And I know what you have for me. And I want to be a person that puts my feet in those places. And so we opened up this series saying, this is what the book of James is about. Motivating and calling Christians to step beyond the mediocrity, beyond the things in the middle, and into the life that God has called them to. So rather than recap all of that, because I'm not going to spend time kind of going back, you can get on the website and listen to all those, those messages if you really want to. And maybe when we get to the very end of all this, I'll go through and pick out, um, and, and one Sunday, pick out all the great kind of teaching moments that, that God has had for us along the way, and we'll sort of recap the whole thing. But really, because of time-wise, we just need to dive into each section as we go. So if you want to get caught up and go, man, this sounds really interesting, I'd love to hear, just go to the website, they're all there, subscribe, subscribe to the podcast, you can catch up on that. We are diving into James chapter 4, and I say this all the time, and I'll say it again because I think it's true, but really what we're going to look at today I, I think is a world changer. 
All right, scripture is always a world changer, but really today, I think, is a, is a world changer. Because if we, if we really read the words, okay, we really listen to what James is saying. We really hear with understanding, right, which we talked about in James 1. If we really allow the truth of these words to penetrate our lives, I truly believe that it would save our marriages. It would save our relationships with our children. It might save our work relationships. But more than anything, it would help propel and save our relationship with Christ from this sort of mediocre middle ground. What we're going to look at the book of James is, is something where James moves beyond this sort of generalization of teaching ideas, and he pinpoints a specific problem that's happening in the life of these first century Christians, which a lot of our New Testament letters do. They identify specific problems and they address them, and James is going to pick one out today, and it's going to hit really close to home. And he's going to say, you know what, the problem in your churches, the problem in your lives and in your marriages and the problem in your relationships, you want to know what it is? It's you. All right, and we're going to unpack that today and see if we can't understand the root of the problem, and then next week we're going to unpack the solution together. So we're going to split this section in James 4 up into two. But we're going to discover the problem, most of our lives, most of our relationships, most of our churches today, and then next week we're going to figure out what James says on how to walk beyond it. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to, to James chapter 4. We'll spend just our time looking at the first six verses today, and then next week we'll unpack um, the others. But... Let's see what James addresses. Let's take a quick, quick second and just ask God to move in us and, and open his word to us this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, you've heard the cry of our hearts through all our prayer. God, you've heard our, our desire to know you. You've heard our cry for deliverance and for you to heal things in our life. But Lord, really our cry right now is that you would teach us. Lord, we understand that we can't open your word and get anything out of it. You are going to have to reveal it to us. Your truth is something that you show us, you reveal to us. So, Father, open our hearts to these words we may have seen dozens of times. Turn our worlds upside down. Help us understand the true problem. Don't let us sidestep it by thinking this doesn't apply to me. Don't let us sidestep Scripture by thinking about you're talking to somebody else. The truth is you are talking directly to our hearts. So, Father, move in us. Take just a moment and ask God to move in you this morning. Ask him to reveal something to you that maybe you don't want to know. I dare you to ask God that. God, reveal something to me this morning that maybe I just don't want to know. Pray for someone beside you, uh, around you. Pray for them by name if you know it. If you don't, just pray for them by, I don't know, color of the shirt. Just say, God, I want you to do something in this person's life. They're sitting right here. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we turn this time completely and totally over to you. Um, reveal truth to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So James shifts gears completely, all right? A lot of times these, these little numbers that we have in our Bible, they were added by people. These were letters that were written, all right? The numbers, James didn't go through his book and be like, okay, this should be verse 1. Four. I mean, these were added later on to help us pinpoint things, okay? Because most Greek kind of writing was, was out there without, like, punctuation or anything. And so it's just this letter written to people. And so people later on go in and, and sort of kind of dissect it up and help it really make sense for you and I as, as English readers or as, as readers. And we can go back and look things and go, oh, James 4, 1, I know where to find it. So that's why they're there. They're helpful tools for you and I. But James didn't write it that way. And so trying to understand where James is continuing patterns of thought and where he just sort of end paragraph and start something else is sometimes hard. But we have a very clear break in his line of thinking. Last time we met, which was four weeks ago, James was talking about wisdom. Two kinds of wisdom, right? Wisdom is from the Lord, wisdom is from the enemy. Talk about which one is truth and how we really live into that. And then he takes a stop 
just kind of pauses and he starts something completely different. And he moves beyond, as I'm going to mention, he moves beyond a general teaching about wisdom and thinking and following Christ. And he kind of all through those first three chapters, some very general kind of this is what joy looks like, this is what it means to listen to the Lord. And now he moves into some very specific problem that was happening in the church. And he pinpoints it and he names it. And so this morning we're going to look at that because I think it has a real direct application to not only our churches, but to our lives. So James is, is starting with a new thought in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And I'll just we'll kind of go through a few verses at a time rather than read the whole thing uh, like we sometimes do. But let's look at the first three verses. James says this, what causes, and he's addressing these Jewish Christians, right? These are Jewish Christians that are gathered together. They're converts, people that have given their life to Christ but have a Jewish heritage and background. These are not Gentile Christians like Paul writes to a lot of times. These are people with a background and knowledge of the Lord, right? These are people that have been raised understanding the law yet have given their life to Jesus Christ and are, are really living brand new lives. He says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill, covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. So out of nowhere, James says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? He's never mentioned anything like that. In all three chapters, James is talking about lives that follow Christ and this, and what do we do with this, and living in joy. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of what we have is chapter four, James says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? I mean, he immediately, even just kind of looking at this from the outside, looking in, we realize that there's a problem, right? These first century Christians are actually having fights and quarrels. Now, I know that for a lot of us, we, we have this idyllic, idealistic picture of the New Testament church. The New Testament church was unified, and they shared everything, and they gave everything, and when somebody had a need, they pulled it out. We read the book of Acts, and we say, man, they ate every meal together, and they sat down together, and they were in each other's homes, and, and, and so-and-so lost their job, and so we all pulled together and supported them, and it was like this perfect picture. And somehow, 2,000 years later, the church picture that we have is shattered by denominations, right? We have this church doing this and this church doing that, and they won't even talk to each other, right? Because they believe this, and they shouldn't do that, and they're dancing, and we can't do this, and they wear that thing. Well, you know, here, they sing this song, and it's so loud, and they should never, you know, we fight, we quarrel, and we think, man, if we could just get back to the early church, we could just be a New Testament church, then, man, things would be right. Now, there's some, some truth to that, but we have to understand is the New Testament church wasn't perfect. If you read Scripture, Paul is constantly addressing issues that they're having. Corinthian church fought like crazy. James is addressing a similar issue. Obviously, there are fighting and quarreling that is happening in the lives of these believers. And I know for a lot of us, you know, we think, wow, man, fighting and quarreling happening in the church? I mean, it's shocking. I've never been a part of a church that fought and quarreled. I mean, the reality is, is that I think a lot of us are jaded because we have seen the inner workings of the church. If you've ever pulled back the curtain, you've ever served on a committee in a, in a church, and you pulled back the curtain, and you've seen some of the things that go on, the gossip and the slander and the hurt, You've ever been hurt by that? It's like one of those things that you can never unsee again, right? You've seen it, and you hate it. And I think a lot of people are jaded by the church because of what they've experienced in the in quarrels and the fighting and the things. I mean, honestly, I've worked in the church since 1996, and some of the most awful, quarreling, fighting, hurtful, anger-filled things that I've ever experienced in my life have taken place within the metaphorical walls of the church. 
They've taken place in the relationships of Christians. They've taken place in the context of people that say, we follow Christ together. I mean, like you, I have witnessed hurt taking place in the lives of believers, right? So it's not really a surprise when we look at this letter and we see James saying, okay, so I've gotten through all these things about what it means to follow Christ. Now let's talk about what's really going on. What is causing the fights and quarrels among you? So somehow James has gotten word that these Jewish Christians were fighting. And we don't really know what they're fighting about. The letter doesn't really explain, but I'm sure it's not all that different than what we fight about. Most likely it has to do with uh, theology, you know, music. has to do with who's believing this and why they're not doing that. And they should be doing this. And we're following this guy and he's a better teacher. And they're all just quarreling about whatever. And James says, what's causing it? And he, and he almost asks this sort of question as if he really wants to know. And you're waiting for Brother Bob in the back to be like, hey, James, this is a great question. Because... You know, you know what's causing it is they tried to paint the room where we keep all the baskets. That room shouldn't be painted. It's been the same way since we started this thing 21 years ago. You can't paint the basket room. And you're waiting for that guy in the back to be like, that's not what it's about at all. That's not what it's about at all. And I've got this other thing and we're fighting about this because they're too liberal on this or, or they're too conservative about this. If they just believed this or gave their money over here and quit putting it over here, then we'd all be living in unity. You're almost waiting for people to start chiming up and going, thank you for asking. You know what the problem with the church is? Because every single one of us knows what the problem with the church is, right? I could ask every single one of you, I'll tell you exactly what the problem with the church is. The church would just do this. The church, big C, would just do that. And every single one of us, we have a list of 100 different answers. We all can pinpoint the problem in the church, right? And it's all, always somebody else. Always, always. But check out what James does, which I think is fascinating. Before he gives you a chance and Brother Bob a chance to answer about the basket room, he goes ahead and follows his question up with a question, kind of a, a, an answer question, another rhetorical question. He says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? You know, because somebody's reading this letter out loud to the church, just like we are. They're going, hey, James wrote a letter. Let's pay attention to what it says. And he says, hey, what's causing these fights and quarrels among you? And you're sitting in the back row going, I know. Just ask me. I'll tell you. But then James follows up with this. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? See, check this out. I think at first glance, we think the problem is that the church is fighting and quarreling. We think the problem is that Brother Bob and Brother Roger, they don't get along. And they're fighting about things that are, you know, whatever. But James says, listen, you want to be honest about the problem? The problem is not the quarrel and the fighting. The problem is because it's not the battle that's happening with the believer. It's the battle that's happening within you. See, he says, don't you understand that the problem really is coming from within you? Now, I find this really fascinating because most of us think that the problem is somebody else. I mean, I spend a lot of my time counseling and visiting with people. I have sat for hours and hours and hours listening to husbands tell me about why their wives are messing up their marriage. I've listened to wives tell me that if their husband would just do these two things, then they wouldn't have the problems they're having. I've listened to parents tell me about why their children are destroying their lives and if they would just do these things. I've listened to people talk about they're leaving the church because so-and-so and their pastor group, whatever, won't do this. Because in most of our mindsets, our struggles and our quarrels are always the result of someone else. And there probably is some truth there. I mean, there's probably little underlyings of truth. But what James is saying is really profound. He says the problem with your fighting and quarreling is not the battle that's taking place between you. But it's what's taking place in your life. 
And I found this really profound because I truly believe that if we understand these words, it will save your marriage. If you understand that the root of the problem that you are having with people, whether it's your church, whether it's your wife, whether it's your husband, whether it's your girlfriend, whether it's your people at work, is probably what's going on in you. It will change the way that you see people. But see, most of us don't want to understand that. We don't really want to deal with the fact that it's not so-and-so, that it's not just my husband doesn't value me, or that my wife doesn't support me. It's the fact that my heart is at war within me. It's the fact that I've got some issues of my own life that are pouring into my marriage. That I have some identity issues and some confidence issues and some hurt issues and some failure issues. And that when my wife doesn't support my need for recognition because I already struggle with a fear of failure, it's somehow her fault. Happens within the church. We talk about leaving churches all the time because so-and-so won't do this. When we fail to recognize the blinders on our own eyes. And James says, listen, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? They come from your own desires that battle within you. Listen to verse 2. You want something and don't get it. You kill, you covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel in your fight. James says, listen, you want to know what's causing the source of your fight? It's going on within you. You want something and you don't get it. Now think about this for a minute. I'm not talking about just physical things because I don't think James is really talking about that. He's not saying you want that new car, that new TV, that new whatever, and so you don't get it, and so you quarrel and fight. But think about the things that you want. I mean, really want. I want my wife to support me. I want my husband to value me. I want my church to notice me. I want my kids to to want what I want for their lives. I want to not want so much. I want to not be so afraid. I want to not be controlled by my finances. Think about the wants in your life. Man, I could go on and on and on. And James says those things inside of you, you want but you don't get. So what do you do? You kill and you covet and you quarrel and you fight. Now, this, is, this, is re- this really struck me because these, James is not talking literally here. We know the New Testament Christians were not killing each other over their wants, but he's using very strong metaphorical language. Because think about how you kill people around you, how you kind of sabotage your relationships. You do it with the way you speak to people. We learned that in chapter one. You do it with the way you look at people, with your glances, with the words under your breath, with your sort of uh, withdrawing emotionally, when we don't get what we want, right? Not like little two-year-old tantrums. We don't get what we want. We kill. I have watched more husbands and wives sabotage their marriages because they will kill with their words and glances because they aren't being fulfilled with their wants. And he says, and you kill, kill, and you covet. You know, covet just means sort of longing for something that's not yours. So you look around you and you say, man, I want my neighbor's life. What do they do? How come they never struggle? We've talked about this in here before. How come nobody around us ever struggles as much as we do? And we talk about Facebook, everybody's happy. I'm not. How come nobody else has the issues that I have? I want someone else's life. If my husband just made more money, then I wouldn't have to work and I could stay in with the kids and I wouldn't be so bitter. Or if my wife just supported me and knew how hard I was working, 
or if I just had someone in my life to share my loneliness with. You see where James is going? He says, what causes the quarrels and fights among you? Don't you know that it's what battles within your own life? You want and you don't get. In other words, the source of your struggles and your quarrels is your own selfishness. None of us want to admit that. Now, a lot of times we'll say it. Yeah, I know, I'm selfish. I get that. But no, I mean, really. And if you've been married for any point in time in your life, any length of time, you recognize, if you're really honest, that the source of the majority of your fights and struggles is your own selfishness. If you would quit being so ridiculous about what you want, about what you think you need, and about what you think you deserve, you could save your marriage. Not always, but sometimes, the majority of times. So he says, you don't get it, so you kill and you covet and you quarrel and you fight. And our killing and our coveting leads to quarreling and fighting. I mean, just use this in the context of the church you've been a part of that you hate now. The one you grew up in, you saw behind the curtain, your dad was an elder, right? And he used to come home angry and frustrated and mad because the church was doing this and they were spending X number of dollars and they're putting in a new organ. They shouldn't have been doing that. Or they were giving this money over here and your dad was mad and, or whatever. Your mom was frustrated. And, the, and you looked behind that curtain and you got jaded. So you kill and you covet and you quarrel and you fight. Do it in your own lives. And James says this. He says, listen to this. You quarrel and you fight. He goes, but here's the deal. You do not have, right? Because you do not ask God. Which I find really Interesting, because he says, you know, you, get, you don't get the things you want. You want to know why you don't have them? Because you don't ask God for them. Which is really just a symptom of a deeper problem in your own relationship with Christ. I don't have what I want because usually I go to God as a last resort. James is basically saying God is not the first outlet for your needs. When life goes to chaos, your first turn is not to the Lord. It's to try and solve it yourself. When you finally can't, you go throw your hands up to God and say, God, show me what I need to do. But James puts a kicker in there, and he says, okay, you don't have because you don't ask God. He says, but when you finally do get around to asking God, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Now, I didn't like this verse, um, mainly because it's really true in my own life. Who's the master of your motives? When you actually go to the Lord and you petition, you say, God, I need this or do this or whatever, what are the motives that are driving you? I started really looking at my own prayer life and realized how much of it was driven by, God, give me this. God, do this for me. God, heal me for this. Forgive me for that. God, do this, this, me, 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 me. And your prayer life is probably the same. All of my motives are about God removing and relieving my discomfort. All of them. Except when I pray for you. But when I pray for me, it's all about God removing my discomfort. My motives are all about me feeling better about my life. God, provide more for us in this category. God, do this for me, or God, show me this. Or God, Never are they about God, I want to be where you are. Show me where you will have me, because I will follow that. Not God, give me this. And James says, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, and you know what your motive is? Selfishness. Because when you get it, you want to spend it on yourself selfishness the root of our quarreling and fighting in our churches in our relationships in our marriage is your selfishness it's my selfishness 
It's because I want what I think I should get. And James says, that's the problem. The problem is not the actual fighting, the quarreling. The problem is you, what's going on in your heart, and your selfishness. And that really messed me up, all right, because I'm the first to tell you that most of my problems don't belong to me. They belong to somebody else. I mean, even though fights that, that Meredith and I have are always her. I mean, come on. She doesn't see it how it should be or what I need or what we need to do. And if she would just see it that way, then we would be okay. And yeah, I recognize myself in this here or there, but really it's because I'm just conceding to the fact that it will make it easier if we just sort of admit it. What God was showing me was that the, the, the reason the church, the Christians, these are believers, struggle. It's because they're selfishness. Because they want to spend what they get on their own desires. And don't think monetarily here. Think about how you want relief from your discomfort. So to add insult to injury, James takes it a little bit farther. And I want you to think about it. Just, just admit with me for a minute this, that maybe the struggles that you're having in your life, issues or relationships, whether it's you know, frustration with church or whether it's frustration with people or it's marriage or it's broken relationship or whatever, maybe, just maybe, it's got a lot to do with you. Let's just admit that to me for just a moment. You can walk out of here and forget it, but just for a second, because I want you to see what James is doing. That maybe there's something going on inside of you. Maybe your own selfishness is driving a lot of that. Listen to what James says. Now remember, these are Christians. These are Jewish people that have given their life to Christ. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Now James could have chosen a thousand words, but he looks at these Christians and he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that when you're friends with the world, you are enemies of God? Basically what James is saying is this, when we live in our own selfishness, when we live in this quarreling and fighting that says, life is about me and I deserve this, or I want this, or I need this, or Lord, give me this, or make her understand this about me, or make him do this, or God, give me, free me, do this for me. When we live that way, when we allow that selfishness to captivate our lives, James calls us adulterers. He actually says that when we live that way, we become friends with the world. And we become friends with the world, become enemies of God. What James is saying is that when we live in selfishness, we've taken another lover. We have become and have a love affair with the world. And you know, most of us don't even really realize how we got there. You know, life was going along fine and we wake up one day and we're living in this sort of mediocre, passionless life. Church has become a habit. We don't even really know why we go except we know we should. There's no emotion involved. There's no heartbeat for Christ. We're not pursuing Christ any more than we're pursuing anything else. And like we started this series, we wake up one day and we realize we're living smack dab in the middle of a mediocre life. And we know God has more for us. And when we live that way, we literally are cheating on God. Now, I found this remarkable because I want James to fix it and say, listen, it's okay, change these three things. But instead, James tells me I'm having an affair. 
I'm having an affair with the world, and it breaks the heart of God. Do you know that when you are living in selfishness, when you are living in the middle of quarreling and fighting, when you will not forgive the people around you, your mom, the church, friends, whatever it is, your husband, when you are living in resentment and anger, when you are living in selfishness, you are cheating on God. You are having an affair with the world. And James says you are an adulterer, and it is breaking God's heart. And I was sitting there looking at this, I said, God, I've apologized to you for a lot of things. And I've begged your forgiveness for a lot of things in my life. But Lord, I've never put myself in a category like that where I realize that my own selfishness and living for the world and wanting more things and wanting more stuff and wanting these things and deliver me from this and give me that and show her this was cheating on you because you want something more for me. When we give into the world, we decide that's the mediocre life we're going to live, that inauthentic life that just says, I'm going to live in the middle ground. We sell ourselves out to what the world wants and the world's desires. We live in selfishness and we bicker and quarrel and we fight and we don't forgive. We live with resentment and bitterness. We're cheating on God. And this messed me up. Because if I realize that most of this is my fault, because I won't recognize my own selfishness and my own need for a savior, I live as an adulterer. You see, the problem with our quarreling and our fighting, with the things that James is addressing both in our relationships and our church, is your infidelity. It's my infidelity. It's not the fact that, you know, I just want something else. It's the fact that I'm cheating on what God has for me. If you are living in middle ground today, if you are living a mediocre life, a passionless life, you are cheating on God because God has something so much more for you. That as we celebrated last week, he sent his son Jesus to die so that your life would be filled with passion and joy and redemption. And you're living in resentment and anger and it's breaking God's heart. See, this is the problem that James is pointing out in the church. He goes, okay, we got through all that. Listen to this. What we learned this week is that there's a problem and that we're living in the middle of infidelity. And if you've got to forgive someone, you need to do it. If you need to let go of your own selfishness, you need to break it. If you need to decide that you've got to let go of something, then do it. If you need to look at your husband and wife after church today and sit across from them at lunch and say, I have failed you, then you do it. Because you're not just cheating yourself, you're cheating on the God that breathed life into your lungs. And it's infidelity. Next week, we're going to learn what James says his solution is, and it will mess you up even more. So come back next week and we'll discover the remedy for our infidelity as we challenge ourselves to fall back in love with Jesus. Let's pray.